Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that uh, you have not left us alone uh, to guess who you are and to guess about your character, uh, but you sent your Son to show us who you are, to show us your character. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit inspired this word that, that might be written down, that we might learn of you. We uh, pray that as we listen to your word read and preached, that your spirit, the same spirit who inspired this word, would be within us, stirring our affections for Jesus, that we might see him clearly and know you as well. And that our praises uh, would result in salvation. You would be filling us with faith in this very moment, with love for Jesus. We uh, pray that the, the, the words of my mouth, the, the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, there's been a, a change of plans for this morning. Everything's fluid these days. Several weeks ago, as we were beginning our mini-series on the book of Jude, I told you that we were going to begin a series in 2 Peter this morning as part of a, a larger effort to explore New Testament books that you rarely read. But we're going to save 2 Peter for another time, because next week we're going to do something a little different, which Brandy announced to you earlier, during the time we typically reserve for the sermon. And rather than start 2 Peter and have to pause the series after only one Sunday, we're just going to wait on 2 Peter. Forgive us, Peter. Not only did 2 Peter get placed in the category of New Testament books you rarely read, but now we're not even going to read it. Poor Peter. At least we're not going to read Paul instead, right? That would be just too cruel, so we'll spare him that. This morning, what we're going to do instead of looking at a, a New Testament book that you rarely read is we're going to look at an Old Testament story that you barely know what to do with. And there are many of those, I know, but the one we have chosen for this morning is told for us in, in 1 Samuel 30, and it was read in part for you earlier. If you have headings in your Bible, then it, it probably says something like, David avenges the destruction of Ziklag, or David defeats the Amalekites, or something similar to that. It is the, the retelling of one of the many military victories that David won in his lifetime. At the time of our story, David was living as a displaced person. He was a man on the run. Several years before, Samuel, the, the prophet and kingmaker, had anointed David under God's direction as the true king of Israel, while Saul was still reigning and in power. As you can probably imagine, Saul didn't much care to keep around a man who had been divinely appointed to replace him and who had also won the heart of the people too. So Saul attempted to kill David multiple times, but each time he was unsuccessful. And David had escaped into the wilderness with hundreds of soldiers who had declared their allegiance to him as the true king. And in his exile, David took up residence among none other than the Philistines, that perennial enemy of Israel's. And David became a sort of mercenary for them with his army of warriors at his command. At the time of our story, David and his men had taken up residence in Ziklag, a little provincial town in, in Philistine territory. And it was to Ziklag 
that David and his warriors were returning after riding out to join the Philistines in battle, when they discovered to their dismay that while they were away, another group of people called the Amalekites had ransacked Ziklag. They burned the place to the ground, and the wives, sons, and daughters of these men that they had left behind were gone. Everything they owned, everything they loved, everyone they loved was gone, and there was only desolation. It was a loss so great that even these hardened warriors wept. It was a loud, full-throated sobbing. And the text tells us in verse 4 that they raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Have you ever cried so much and so hard that you had no tears left? That's what's happening to these men. They were sick to their stomachs, for everything they loved was gone. And it wasn't long before their grief turned to anger. And they began to demand justice. Someone must pay for this great loss. And these great loss. And these warriors, deranged by grief, began to think about stoning the king that they had sworn allegiance to. But David's death wouldn't have brought back what was once loved, but now is lost. And David knew that. So he he sought an avenue of justice that might actually result in in the restoration of what had been lost. David approached God in prayer, and he asked, what do you want me to do? Should I pursue these Amalekites or what? And the answer David received in response let him know that there was still hope. For God told him not only to pursue, but to rescue as well. His wives and the the families of all his men were still alive then, for there was someone to rescue. It was news that filled David and his men with a renewed energy. They were ready to go. But before we follow them in their pursuit of the Amalekites, I feel the need to pause and acknowledge the fact that just one sentence ago I said that David's wives, plural, were still alive. We'll follow them into battle, and we'll see how they fare against the Amalekites. But I don't feel as though I can merely mention in passing that David, the greatest king of Israel, a man said to be a man after God's own heart, had multiple wives, and then move on without saying at least something. So here's what I want to say. People often point to this reality about David, about other men in the Old Testament who had more than one wife, Jacob, Solomon, are the other big names as evidence that the Bible has has a low view of of women, promotes a patriarchal culture in which women amount for little. The facts are the facts here, and there's no denying that these men had multiple wives. That's a fact. But these facts are conveyed in such a way in Scripture that the entire narrative provides a commentary on the facts. And the narrative around polygamy in the Bible is that it is a terrible idea. Any place there is polygamy in the Bible, it highlights the way in which polygamy tears families apart with competition and favoritism and jealousy and divided interests. The families in the Bible where polygamy is practiced are always presented to us as absolute messes. And by doing this, the authors of scripture are moving the needle in a culture where polygamy was common and widely accepted. 
They do not, in the Old Testament at least, come right out and say this is bad, we should not do this, but they do everything but that in a culture where no one thought it was bad. And so what scripture is doing is actually pretty radical because it's pushing back against the culture by providing it with a mirror in which it can see itself. And the picture that it presented is that polygamy is a terrible idea. A polygamous society will deteriorate and fall apart. And so they're moving the needle closer and closer to monogamy. So yes, David had more than one wife. But look at his family for even a brief glance and you'll see that scripture tells us a story about a broken and highly dysfunctional family on account of David's polygamy. The mere fact is no approval or promotion. In fact, what you actually get is the opposite. But that's enough for that, about that for now. Because we've left hundreds of warriors anxious to go to war in order to recover the ones they love that we need to rejoin. God had, had given them the green light to pursue and recover. And so 600 men set off that very moment in hot pursuit of the Amalekites. But we quickly get a glimpse at their physical state. For early on, 200 of them say that they're too exhausted to go any further. Remember, these, these men were returning to Ziklag in order to recover after battle, and now they were headed right back out without any rest. And the turnaround was just too much for 200 of these men, that even the thought of recovering their families wasn't enough to give them the necessary strength. And if these men were feeling that way, then you know the 400 who continued on weren't exactly fresh. But we discover in their exhaustion what motivates them to press beyond their physical limitations. It's love alone that motivates them and animates them. The hope of recovering the people they love drove them on. And the story goes that recover them they did. In verse 19, we get a summary of the victory. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back everything. His recovery of what was lost was total and complete. And the story ends with David and his warriors marching triumphantly back to Ziklag with their families. And before them were paraded all that had been recovered so that anyone who saw them passing by might see their spoils and be reminded once again of the greatness, the courage, the strength, and the love of their king. He is worth following. For look how effectively he saves his own. And so the story ends. But what are we supposed to do with it? What does it have to do with us? It's hard to distill some moral lesson from this story. It's probably unwise to hold out David as a hero for us to model our behavior after in this story. But the Bible wasn't written for either of those purposes anyway. It's neither a rule book nor a book of heroes to mimic. Rather, the Bible tells the story of humanity's salvation over and over again in diverse ways. And that is exactly what this story is for us. The story of David defeating the Amalekites, or of David avenging the destruction of Ziklag, whatever you want to call it, is the story of our salvation. Really? How so, you ask? Glad you asked. Because the story that Scripture tells us about ourselves is that God created us in love. 
And out of everything in the world, he was most pleased with us. In fact, everything else he, he merely spoke into being. Let's have, let's have sky up there. And over there, I think I'd like some dry land. And let's have something to cover the land. How about some grass and trees and bushes? And it went like that for everything. But with humanity, the creation process became intimate. He didn't speak humanity into existence, but instead he formed us and he shaped us with his hands. And he put his mouth to ours and he breathed into us so that our lungs became inflated with the breath of God. It was the most intimate creation. And when we were created, he smiled. And stepping back to get a full glimpse at us, he said, very good, very good indeed. God loves humanity. He loves us and every person in this world, regardless of language or color or culture, with the sort of fierce and unshakable love that a parent has for a child. It's the same kind of love that David and his men had for their families. But just as in the story of David and his men, there was a, a tragic event that separated us from God. There was a break in the relationship, not because we were forcibly carried into a distant land, but because we went there willingly in pursuit of greener pastures. The story of humanity is that we doubt the sufficiency of God's love and provision. We're suspicious that he's withholding something better from us, and we're confident in our own ability to discover or accomplish that something better on our own, either individually or corporately. And so we reject the wisdom of God and label it as restrictive or, or folly. It's a rebellion that humanity has been staging since our beginning, even in the present day. And the results show us that it is high time to give up our project and return to God in humility and trust because Seeking freedom, we've become slaves to ourselves and to sin. Slaves? Really? How so? I'm glad you asked. Because if you cut God out of the equation, then you're left with this enormous vacuum that you must fill with something else because there's nothing that can take the place of God. Everything you elevate to the position of God ends up owning you because it's up to you to protect it and sustain it. And it doesn't result in the sort of freedom that only God offers because he doesn't need you to hold him up. Instead, he's available to do that for you. He is free to set you free. Everything else will just enslave you. And for instance, God says to us, listen, I'll provide for you. Not only financially, but also emotionally, right? So not only will he give us what we need, He'll redefine what we need. But he'll tell us what we need to hear, which is that we're significant and valuable and loved just because we are his. But without God, we throw ourselves into our careers or into school, whatever our, the way we spend our time. And we try to prove our significance to ourselves and to others. And never feeling as if we have enough, we work more until eventually we're no longer working a job, but the job is working us. And we're burned out and fed up and ready to quit it all. Working hard is not wrong, but to do so apart from the assurances of God's love and provision is dangerous. 
because you'll never stop or rest because you can't. The God of work won't allow it. Another example, and really there are no ends to the examples for, as John Calvin says, our, our hearts are idle factories. You can make an idol out of anything good. But another example is God's imposition of limits. Right? We're, we're creatures, and God has told us never to forget that. Not because it makes him feel better about himself, but because we can't bear the weight of a life without limitations. We become crushed under the weight of trying to determine reality. But apart from God, that's exactly what we're left to do. So we go inside of ourselves and we try to figure out who we are and what's real. But the result is a deeply insecure people who require the world's affirmation and a deeply incoherent people, right? Who believe strongly that there's a, a right and a wrong on one hand, but that also one should never judge another's actions on the other because we each determine our own reality and what matters most is being true to yourselves. It's deeply incoherent. We refuse to submit to the physical creation that God has created for us and in us. And we become deeply insecure, incoherent. We crumble under the weight of it. And it kills God. It cuts him to the heart to see us flounder around, searching for life apart from him and failing miserably, becoming slaves to ourselves in the spirit of our age. That God has decided to, to pursue us and to rescue us. There's hope. He puts on his battle gear to pursue us. But his battle gear was not made of Teflon or metal, but of flesh and blood. God came to us. More specifically, the Son of God came to us as a human being. Because the way of rescue wasn't just a matter of running off the Amalekites. No, our, our rescue required nothing short of the reconciliation of humanity back to the God we abandoned in favor of browner pastures. And God experienced exhaustion. See Jesus resting at the well, tired and weary. We see him breaking down in the Garden of Gethsemane, but like the warriors, love drove him on. He pressed through because love drove him on. And the only way reconciliation could be accomplished was if an innocent human being lived for us and died for us as a sacrifice. Someone had to pay for our rebellion. It was either one innocent human being or the entire human race, but God's love for us prevented him from taking the latter route, and so he came. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death in order to redeem us from ourselves and from our sin. And the way back to God is open through Jesus. And he invites us into himself in order to live a more sane, fulfilling, and contented life. It's a life with limitations, but it's also a life of complete freedom. It's a life of rest, but it is also a life of great significance. He supplies and meets our desires in ways we never thought possible, which is why the way of Christ requires humility and deep trust. For he requires repentance, dying to yourself, and in return he promises life. It's deeper wisdom than the world knows, but it's made known to us in the cross. Through death, Jesus showed himself stronger than all things, even death itself. 
So that wherever you are, whatever's owning you in this very moment, he has shown himself to be stronger still. He has come to rescue us and to show us life so that we might be satisfied with those things that are good. And when he comes again, he will march triumphantly with the saints perfected, marching in front of him and the the spoils of his victory on the cross. And our lives will serve their most significant purpose yet. For all the heavenly beings and all the saints who have gone before us will see us and they will be reminded once again how great and how courageous, how strong and how loving is this King who redeemed us. How worthy he is of our praise and of our lives. And the whole story will end in praise. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.